Do you want to grab whatever you got in the way of a Bible? And we're going to turn to Luke 3. And I think today we just might read the whole lot. Because <laughs> that's what we're looking at today. Luke chapter 3. Here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying... Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janae, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Marth, the son of Mathathias, the son of Semen, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elodam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, 
the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mele, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxid, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mihalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, take a breath. Thanks, John. I think John needs a round of applause for that. I think he did pretty well. I think he's had some sleepless nights. I know he's been practicing pretty hard. Um, if you're wondering why we do that, we believe in the God, the Word of the Word of the Lord. We believe in the Bible, and we believe all Scripture that includes the names are relevant for us even today. So that's why we read it, um, and it's also good for us in our busy week. When we're reading through chapters like that, if you're like me, you sort of skim all of that and jump ahead. Um, but the author put it there for a reason. So in light of that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for who you are. We want to thank you for the privilege to look at your word this morning. We pray now that you would speak loudly and clearly to us through your word, that your spirit would make it come alive, and you would transform hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so Canterbury Gardens, as a church, we've been traveling through the Gospel of Luke, if you're visiting us, uh, and we've been reminded uh, recently, and particularly as we started this series, that the God that we serve is the God of the impossible. And that's been beautifully displayed in the way that he pursued uh, a sinful nation, he, sinful people, uh, and he made it possible for us to have relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. We're reminded as well that when you begin a relationship with Jesus, that you are given a purpose, that now you belong to him and that you're meant to represent him and you are meant to be a follower of Christ and you have a purpose in life. And last week we were asking you the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? And we were very clearly shown that Jesus is not just some ordinary child. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. But he's the one that you can actually find salvation in. And he's the one who reveals and shows the heart of men and women. And he's the one that you can find who's the one who redeems. He's the one who rescues. And this way we come to this part of the gospel. It's like if it was a good movie, the camera is starting to pan out and we're starting to see the details unfolding to give us a big picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the gospel of Jesus Christ, just to sort of set an idea for us in our heads. I don't know if you know a guy by the name of Shane Warne or Warney, as he's known to his uh, teammates and players. Shane Warne was a cricket player. He's known for his amazing ability to spin the ball in amazing directions. But he's also known for his uh, lifestyle outside uh, the cricket field. 
A few years ago, Shane had a bit of a smoking habit and a part of this was he was asked by a particular company to represent them because he wanted to quit smoking. And to do that, they were going to offer him $200,000 uh, to quit smoking and he was going to put a nicotine patch on his arm and he was going to become their ambassador. He did advertisements for it. He's going to represent a particular new lifestyle. Well, a couple of days later, he was in a nightclub and someone took a photo of him having a cigarette. And that $200,000 deal went down the drain. Shane wanted to live a particular life, so he wanted to show that he's a brand ambassador for this nicotine patch. Now, that photo comes out and obviously he's lost the deal. But if he came up to me and said, Shabu, I can show you how to live a smoke-free lifestyle while he holds a cigarette in his hand, it doesn't really match up. Because his lifestyle doesn't add up to who he is. Now, that's a silly illustration in some sense. What about when it comes to our own uh, relationship with Jesus, when our relationship with God? Does your faith connect with your lifestyle? Does your faith connect with your lifestyle? Uh, John read this really amazing passage to us, and, and I don't know if you noticed from the word go in verses 1 to 2 onwards, there's something quite particular. There's a lot of detail of people, places, names. And there's a reason for that. Remember, as we started this series, it was very clear that Theophilus, that Luke is writing to, to say, hey, mate, these things are reliable. You can trust. They're true accounts. And those names that you're reading, they're real people, real places. That even means for today that this is actually a historical document. It's not just a spiritual document. It's a historical document. Those people and places are, uh, are real. Those two names that they mention about the priesthood. Uh, during the Roman Empire, uh, the priesthood changed a little bit in that it became more of a power play. And particular families try to control it. And in that picture, you've got the father and son-in-law trying to control that whole scene. The reason why it's there, even for us today, friends, is that if you know Jesus, please understand this is a spiritual document, but it is also a historical document. These are real things. You can trust it. And if you don't know Jesus... This is to show you these words and truths are not just made up stories. They're real. And if you don't believe me, find out for yourself. Make an informed decision. So the time has come. God's salvation plan is starting to unveil. We, we come up to this life in ministry of John the Baptist who we met early in the few early chapters and we are about to hear also about Jesus' ministry. If you want to use modern day terms, John is about to start his crusade meetings. And he's starting these live sort of 10 meetings. People are coming. They're coming to hear this good news. And what is that good news? In verse 3 it says, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's going on here? Well, why is he doing this? Well, the few verses after that say, verse 4, why is he doing it? Well, it's written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet. Voice one, crying in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then in verse five, you have this amazing picture of valleys being filled, mountains and hills made low, crooked um, parts being made straight, rough places all becoming level, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. That quote is straight from a, a, a passage in Isaiah, which is an Old Testament from the Old Testament. Now, it's not word for word as such. There's a couple of things changed there, but the essence of what it's saying is very clear. The idea of preparing the way for the Messiah. 
Now remember how I said there's this imagery of opposites going on. Path straight, valley fill, mountain hill low, crooked straight, rough becoming level. These are beautiful poetic terms. These are to show something is about to happen in the preparation of the Messiah coming. This is to show one, uh, a few things. One, John talks about that there's a, there's a judgment, there's an impending judgment coming. But not only that, the way to salvation has been cleared. There's a more direct part to salvation now. Remember how last week we talked about Mary. She has a, a child and all the things that she has to go through to even approach the temple to give a sacrifice, even in that she can't enter the temple into the presence of God. This picture here is to say there is something going on. God is changing things around. Path is becoming straighter. Valleys are being filled. Mountain hill low. Crooked parts are being straight. There's the rough are becoming level. And who's all preparing the way? John's preparing the way. Now, I don't think the prophet Isaiah had a picture of uh, John the Baptist as such. It's, it's for those of us like Theophilus and those of us listening in to kind of go, hey, Remember that, that, that passage in Isaiah about the, the, the voice? Well, here is that voice. This is coming true. God's word is being fulfilled. It's once again that big picture of Luke to say God's word is reliable. It's not made up stories. His word is true. What he says will happen. And not only that, what's happening is to show this beautiful picture that God is opening a way for a relationship with him. And then this verse uh, 7, it talks about this idea of judgment also coming in the context particularly for the Israel nation. I love the way John the Baptist starts his sermon. You brood of vipers, who has warned you from the wrath to come? How's that for an encouraging sermon on a Sunday? What did your pastor talk about? He called me a viper, I'm so sinful. Um, What's going on in this picture is uh, John's making it very clear there's judgment coming and, he, and in particular in the context of the Jewish nation, in particular the Jews there. And, he, and he's saying to them, who told you to run away? What's going on? He's, he's pulling them. He's challenging them. He's saying, your lifestyle does not reflect your faith. Not only that, you're hiding behind this idea that your heritage as a Jewish people, as a nation, gives you trumps over everyone else. And somehow that will save you from the impending judgment of a holy God. It's like saying today, hey, my parents are Christians, so that makes me a Christian. Hey, I'm a Christian, but look, all that stuff about sharing and serving those in need and, you know... You know, giving money away and making sure I don't steal money. You know, the tax office doesn't need that. I mean, what's wrong if I abuse the position I have at work? The whole point that John's trying to pull them up is to say, you're saying you belong to God, but your life does not show that. Your lifestyle does not equal your faith. It's a message of warning. It's a message of calling them to repentance. See, um, John is kind of playing this idea of like an Old Testament prophet of those days. He's calling people out. He's, he's judging people. He's calling people back to God. Uh, you read of the Old Testament, there's this constant sort of uh, play going on, and that is that uh, God says, follow me and things will go well with you. If you don't follow me, judgment will come. And so people sin and they turn away from God. Judgment comes. Usually a nation comes and takes them over. 
And they repent. The prophets call them back and say, return to God. They repent and God restores. And the history of the nation of Israel right here, the Roman Empire is over them. They're under occupation. They know in some sense it's a sign of God's judgment. They're waiting for deliverance. And in this context, they're waiting for a Messiah. They've always been waiting for a Messiah. And John is throwing down some old school terms, old school sort of judgment terms like in the prophet Isaiah and Amos. He's calling people to repent, turn away. And one way to do that, he, he talks about this idea of baptism. It was a symbol of consecrating. It was sort of setting yourself apart to say that you belong to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. It's like a recommitting, a rededication, if you want to use our terms in today. It was also said that those who weren't Jewish, if they wanted to join the Jewish religion, one way to do that is to conduct baptism. They had to go through that as a process. That's to say they belong to God. Now, there probably were other baptisms. There's a significant difference about this baptism. And you see that. It's called the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There were other baptisms in place at the time. And it was almost like you get baptized with a repeated baptism. It was a temporary cleansing. And there's a sense that John's bringing in something not different, but a, a message. It's almost like a, a, a pre-gospel to the big gospel and saying this is a one-time only baptism. And so people are responding. It's a powerful image, if you think about it. Before Christ, there's this pre-gospel image going on, and people are responding to the message. They've been convicted to the point they ask some questions in verse 10. They're knowing that they need to be baptized, but they also know that they need to do something about that, and that it needs to connect to their lifestyle. So John addresses three people. They are the crowds, the tax collectors and the soldiers. The crowds in general or the general people are told that in regards to physical needs, don't just keep it to yourself. If you see someone who has a physical need, give them something. Share with them. The tax collectors, the tax collectors weren't guys who were really liked in that time. They worked in some sense for the Roman empires, the, the occupiers, and they were collecting the taxes that were on the road. They would collect taxes and the taxes actually funded the Roman soldiers. And so for the Jewish people, they didn't really like these guys. But in a sense, they were skimming commission for themselves. They were charging what they, they, they ought to and keeping it to themselves. They were stealing. Then you have the soldiers. Now, whether if they're soldiers, Roman Empire soldiers, or if they're soldiers connected to the king of Herod, either way, what they're doing is they're intimidating people. You've got this image of going into someone's house, shaking them, intimidating them to give them money, even though because they're not content with their wages. At the heart of all of this, if you're a Jewish person listening to this, it connects back to a very big picture in the Old Testament. And that is, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to see what's going on here, John's saying if you love God, it should show how you live. Love yourself, love God, love others, love your neighbor. And these guys aren't getting it, they'll be missing it. And so John's ultimately saying in some sense, this is what it looks like practically. When you've turned your way from sin and you love your neighbor. And if you read, as we um, unpack the Gospel of Luke, you will see that starting to play out quite a bit. There's this constant language of, what must I do? And this is a constant reminder, loving God, loving your neighbor. And friends, is this relevant even today? Of course it is, because it's God's Word. 
I mean, this means that if you've been following Jesus for a long time or following God for a long time, does this connect with your everyday life? And that might not be perfectly, but does it look like in your lifestyle that you belong to God? Does your faith connect with your lifestyle? And I think many of us have fallen to this trap that this term Christian is almost like a ticket to heaven. I've got my ticket to heaven, that's all that counts. But it doesn't connect to our everyday life. It doesn't connect in your workplace. It doesn't connect in other areas of life. And that, that can be also dangerous for those of us who see this played out in a negative way. People who proclaim to be Christians and they don't actually show that in their workplace. And we can get into our mighty high horse and think we're better than them. We're not. We need to be careful how that heads out. That means if you're a person who's grown up in the church, maybe you're a little baby and there are people here who have held you. And as you've grown up, you just assume that because your parents are a Christian, that that makes you a Christian. Or that if you go to church on Sundays, you're involved in youth group or in life groups, or you may even go to a Christian school. All those things are good, but if you assume that's what makes you a follower of God, you've missed it. Because it means to follow God, it should be a relationship, but it also should play out in your lifestyle. Because a true follower of God is someone who loves God, but it should continue to be seeping out in every day into our lifestyle. And in this context, it's in saying, don't just ignore those who are in need. Don't steal or exhort. And it's very easy for us, like the people of the time, to hide behind a title and cause arrogance in our hearts. Because even in the Jewish nation, those people are saying they're clinging to the Jewish roots. And John makes a very interesting comment. He says, listen, God doesn't need you. He can actually raise up a whole generation through these stones. I remember years ago when I played basketball. Even as a short guy, I played basketball and I loved playing basketball. And there was this idea. We we played in a Christian league. Uh, It was a Christian team. And we uh, were committed to representing God on these basketball fields. We had this great dream. And so we would uh, get ready to play basketball. And every time we did, I remember standing there in a group in a huddle and we'd be praying, God, you know, bless us and use us today to be a witness on this field for you. And then we go on the court and the whistle blows. And it's like we told Jesus to leave the stadium. I remember one time just after praying for a good uh, game that we witnessed to people, our team got into a physical fight with the opposition. I think sometimes we fall into this trap that it's like Jesus and God is is left either back here on Sunday mornings in this building or when we leave small group or when we leave our homes and we close our Bibles and we miss out on this idea of representing God in this world. And friends, at this point, if you're reading this passage, your automatic default would be for me to leave it right there and say, go do likewise. But see... The Gospel of Luke continues. Yes, we are called to live a particular way to follow Jesus, but something needs to come into the limelight first. Someone needs to come into the limelight first. Because our temptation, all of us, is to do, oh, well, just do good. That's what it's all about. That's what the Christian faith is about, just do good. No. It's much bigger than that. It's much deeper than that. 
And as you read this passage, the story continues. And like a wonderful story, in verse 15, it's like John the Baptist is slowly fading into the background and Jesus Christ is about to take center stage. The Messiah has come. People are asking. He's teaching some pretty uh, powerful messages. People are are responding to his message. And in verse 16, you have this view of the Messiah, of Jesus. Because they ask him, are you the the Messiah? He says, no. No. And he draws this picture of both a, a promise and power, but also of judgment again. John describes Jesus or the Messiah as the one whose dirty sandals he kind of in bow down and untie. Well, what that picture is, if you were in that time, if you were a Jewish slave, that sort of menial task, you wouldn't even go near. It was set aside for those who were non-Jewish. And it's like John said, I'm not even worthy to do that most dirtiest of tasks because of who he is. And he gives this picture of uh, the Messiah baptizing with the power of the Holy Spirit, promising of what is to come. That's nothing new in the Gospel of Luke. The Holy Spirit is sort of constantly there, and then you continue in the book of Acts. It's talking this idea of the Messiah. He's coming, he's going to judge, he's going to look at the fruit, and he's going to sift them, the wheat and the chaff. It's a picture of God's righteous judgment. He's drawing a mighty picture of the Messiah. That Jesus is the one who is mighty. That Jesus is the better baptizer than John because he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus is the one who can only judge. And so with this final picture, John fades. And obviously, I feel like John the Baptist would have been a pretty uh, fiery dude. (laughs) It would have been interesting to get into conversations with him. And I love how Luke... Uh, records his teaching as good. You brood of vipers. Yeah, man, that was so powerful. It shows he was a fiery man to the point that even Herod didn't like the king because John was calling him out because Herod was shacking up with his sister-in-law, his brother's uh, sister, uh, brother's wife, sorry. And so in light of that, he locks him up and eventually leads to his death. So John fades out. And look who comes into the picture. Look in how the Gospel of Luke shows Jesus. In verse 21, people were being baptized. Jesus comes and becomes baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened up. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. In the other Gospels, it goes into different details, but Luke places it right here. Jesus is uh, coming into the center stage. He's, he's, he's Messiah. He's the one. This is the one. He's arrived. But not only that, in this act, Jesus is publicly declaring that he loves God and he's in allegiance to his Father, but not only that, he's submitting to his Father. And in light of that, his Father says, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. There's this powerful picture of the Trinity right there in God the Father and the Holy Spirit coming and God the Son. It's a beautiful picture. See, like I said earlier, when we read those sort of do commands by John, it's very tempting for us to turn around and go, well, what must I do? And if it was just about just doing those things, there's no point for the rest of Luke chapter 3. Actually, you can just stop writing it there. There's no point. Luke can just finish there and go, that's all you need to do. 
But you rewind back a little bit to places like in the book of Amos and the book of Isaiah. There are comments like this by God. I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. That's from Amos chapter 5. There's places like in Isaiah chapter 64 where God says, where it says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade away like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's this powerful picture of what God sees that those good things are not pleasing in a sense. Because there's only one that the Father is truly pleased with. And that's his Son, Jesus Christ. And we see that, don't we, as you explore the Gospel of Luke, as we're going to unpack over the coming weeks, you will see that Jesus himself displays in his lifestyle, in everything that he does, in everything that he says, the love for his Father and the love for his neighbor. And it is a perfect obedience. And that is fully displayed when he finally goes to the cross. But friends, if you are sitting here and thinking, okay, but that is the most freeing thing that we can't actually do that, that Jesus has and will. See, Jesus would eventually head to the cross to die in your place and my place. Jesus is the one the Father is fully pleased with. And yet he becomes sin so that takes the curse that you and I deserve. And through his victorious death and resurrection, when you turn and give your life to Jesus, you become adopted sons and daughters. And you're no longer under condemnation. Because of Jesus, because of his work, because of his obedience, because of his sacrifice, God becomes pleased with us. Because he sees Jesus in us. Oh my goodness, that is amazing to ponder on. That means if you don't know Jesus, you can be the most morally upright person in the world. You can do all the good stuff, but it will not cut it because there's a problem with your heart. And so that means you need to turn to the one that the Father is truly pleased with, Jesus Christ, because he's done the perfect work that you cannot do. So surrender to him. So that means if you do know Jesus, this is our Savior, the one who the Father is truly pleased with. And that means you can try to stop hiding behind your Christian title. You can actually be reminded of the grace and wonder of our Savior. That is to cause our hearts to thank him to the lengths that he went to save you. And for those of you This means also that if you, if you know Jesus, as God's been continuing to shaping you, this means that as he continues to consume your heart, this means that it should infiltrate everyday life, not just on Sunday, not just on small group, not just when you say grace around lunch or dinner. And this is something that God will produce through the power of his spirit, the good fruit, the fruit that is not fake, the try harder fruit. This is a fruit that is only produced through the Holy Spirit. And this all can happen if you turn your life to Jesus. Because when you turn your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes, he lives in you. 
and he produces fruit through you. Uh, just uh, earlier this um, morning when we were doing communion, my two kids were hanging out with me and usually if you have little ones, communion is a dangerous time because you don't know what's going to happen. So my son, you know, he's looking at the bread and stuff. And then, uh, sorry, there's this moment when my kids looked at me as I was about to take the cup and they said, can I see, can I see, can I see? In that moment, it was like this picture. When people look at your lives, whether it's perfect or not perfect, there's a sense they need to say, can I see, can I see? Can they see Jesus in you? It's this picture that I saw in my kids saying, can I see that? Can I? It's that, that's the cry that we, as we follow Jesus, should be playing out in every day of our lives. That means do your workmates know? Do your classmates know? Do your kids know? Is it shown and displayed by the way you live and watch, what you watch, what you listen to? And I'm not talking about some sort of perfect way of doing it. I'm talking about through Christ to living a life set apart for him. The Christian faith is not just about going to heaven. It's much bigger than that. It's to understand that when Christ comes in you, he now lovingly owns you and in submission you follow him wherever he's called you, whether that's in Vanuatu or to Frankston. You represent Jesus Christ. And maybe even today you've realized that you have not been following as God has called you to, even as a follower of Jesus. You have cheated, you've stolen, you've lied. You've ignored all the things that God has called you to do. Well, guess what? God offers you grace. Turn to him in repentance and ask forgiveness and start again. As we wrap up today, some questions I want to leave with you again. Just simply, as a follower of God, who is God challenging you to serve? Not people that you like, maybe even people you struggle with. Secondly, do you need to confess? Maybe you have cheated, maybe you have stolen, even though you haven't represented Jesus perfectly or correctly in your workplace, wherever it is. Maybe you need to turn around and ask Jesus for forgiveness. Thirdly, are you trying to outwork God by your good deeds? You can't. Jesus is the one that the Father is fully pleased in. So stop. Turn to him. Fourthly, are you resting in the one who has done it all on your behalf? Because that's where you will find true rest. And finally, John read that beautiful lineage of all the family leading up to Jesus or before Jesus. And there's this wonderful reality of all these sons, all these sons. And you look through that list and you look at their lives. There's this blaring reality. Those sons did not make the mark. They didn't reach the mark, the perfect mark that only one true son can. Because it is God himself the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So turn to him. This is Jesus. And fifthly, as you head into this week, your faith needs to reflect your lifestyle. Friends, Jesus is the true Son who the Heavenly Father is truly, fully, and 100% pleased with. And through him, when you become followers of him, you become sons and daughters and in whom the Father becomes pleased with, not because of what we've done, because he sees Jesus in us. In light of that, that is the lifestyle we're called to live, representing him wherever he's placed us for his glory. Let me pray.
Father God, we want to thank you for your wonderful provision through your Son. Jesus, thank you for being the perfect one, the one that the Father is fully pleased in. And thank you for going to the lengths that you did. We pray that as we live for you this week, that we will be men and women that representing you wherever you placed us, representing you well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.